So this is Paul Fischer with Adrian Owen, one of the speakers in our BCWT summer school. And, and Adrian showed us his, his latest work, his, um, which actually is opening up a whole new way on, on how we think about different kinds of neurological disorders. So Adrian, maybe you want to give us the, the short version of that. Sure, yeah. Um, we've been using fMRI to look at patients who have so-called disorders of consciousness. These are things like coma, vegetative state, minimally conscious state. Um, and really our main aim has been to determine whether fMRI, and more recently um, EEG, can be used to detect residual awareness. So can we put a patient in a scanner and determine that in spite of the fact that they may appear to be vegetative behaviorally, they are in fact aware um, we did that a couple of years ago now um, with our first patient. We've seen four or five patients since then that are clearly aware or can be shown to be, be aware in the scanner um, despite having no behavioral signs of awareness. And I suppose our most recent um, big result, if you like, is, is to, to use this method to communicate with somebody who was incapable of any form of communication outside of the scanner. Uh, technically, this, this person was in a minimally conscious state. I mean, it, it had been assumed for many years that he was in a vegetative state. But in the scanner, he was able to answer yes or no questions by modulating his brain activity. But now the, this, is, this is an amazing outcome in some sense, right? Because it also is also a scary outcome because it means we, have been, we might have been misdiagnosing a lot, of these, a lot of these patients. But now in some sense, if you want the, one, one criticism which is also also often fielded against these approaches. It's like, yeah, but you know, I'm I'm I would not even know whether you're aware when I'm just talking to you. Because it's a typical zombie argument, right? Where okay, at the surface, it all look, might look like you're aware, you're conscious, but I, can I really be sure? So, so how can you really be sure that your patient is minimally aware? In a way, I think this sort of discussion. Um, you know, you could say this is a held back um, work in this area. I mean, what we have with these patients is, is a very sort of simple, practical problem, which is that some of them might actually be conscious, but unable to tell us that they're conscious. Now, by that, I'm not trying to define what consciousness is. I'm really just trying to say, well, their world is rather like your world or my world, except they can't move. They can't speak. They can't blink an eye. Okay, so irrespective of what consciousness might be, either philosophically or psychologically, their, their sense of the world, how they feel about themselves, how they feel about what they know about what's going on around them, might be similar to yours and mine, but they're incapable of demonstrating that fact. Now, it's a, you know, we know a lot about the locked-in syndrome. These are the cases of patients who are able to, to blink an eye or to move an eyebrow um, despite being able to make no other move. And, and, and despite them being you know, cognitively often uh, perfectly uh, intact. So I think it's, it's very probable that there is a subpopulation of patients, a minority of patients, who are sort of, if you like, totally locked in. Again, cognitively intact, conscious, if you like, but unable to blink an eye uh, or, or move an eyebrow or indicate in any way that they're conscious. And my, my concern really is that until now we have had no practical way of identifying these people. 
I mean, it seems logically certain that they exist, but how, if they cannot respond, if they cannot produce some sort of indication that they're consciousness, how could you ever know they were there? So, and, and this is really what we're trying to find now. I think it's actually a next stage to go to go back to your question is to say, well, what is their consciousness like? Are they really conscious like we are? At the moment, all we know is, you know, is what we know is already very surprising, which is that they're not unconscious. They're not vegetables. They are, in fact, in some senses, aware of where they are, what situation they're in, and perhaps you know how they got there. And I think, you know, we need to move on from from there now. But. And doesn't that imply possibly that maybe the idea of of really hanging this on this hook of consciousness is maybe a big distractor? Because if if I listen to you, um, if I, if I get it right, in some sense you could also argue these are more deficits of let's say communication and interfacing to the world than necessarily of of experience and consciousness. Is that is that a reasonable interpretation? That's absolutely that's absolutely correct. And the reason why this gets complicated is because you know, it's not really an all-or-nothing condition. Um, the vegetative state is part of a whole uh, group of different conditions that are more or less non-communicative. So, minimally conscious state, these are patients who are perhaps one step up from vegetative. They are able to, at least on some occasions, indicate that they are aware by perhaps moving an arm occasionally or, or moving an eye. Um, but they are not able to turn that into any sort of functional communication. If a patient were able to raise their left arm for a yes or their right arm for a no, we would conclude that they were severely disabled, probably not minimally conscious, and so on. You have all these different sort of types of conditions. And in any given clinical situation, it's very, very easy to mix them up. Uh, you know, a vegetative patient, sorry, a, a minimally conscious patient on a bad day might appear to be vegetative and may be diagnosed as vegetative. And this obviously can have an impact on their care and an impact on the way people respond to them and, uh, and think about them sometimes for many years. So, it, you know, it may well be that, I mean, the patients that we are identifying, I think, yes, you know, they are not vegetative. It's clearly not the right description of these, these people. They have a some form of communication disorder. They are... or responsivity disorder I suppose and actually sometimes we now describe them as as non-responsive patients rather than vegetative patients because that is an, a, an assumption that is uh, you know I think based on flawed logic right but so in some sense this might also then then explain some of the criticisms against for instance this, this 2007 science paper where this main result came out where also people would argue well this could just be, let's say, reflex-like automatic responses in the absence of experience. But in some sense, you could not say yes, but in some, maybe that doesn't actually really matter because what we want to provide are then these new communication channels to also improve quality of life and quality of care for these patients. And this whole question about now this additional phenomenon of consciousness is really secondary. Is that, is that a reasonable way of summarizing your approach? Yeah, I mean, in that sense, I think you're, you're right that worrying too much about what consciousness is can be a distraction in that context. I mean, were we, for example, um, to be able to build a brain-computer interface that would allow a patient who everybody else thought was vegetative and behaviorally appeared to be entirely non-responsive, if our brain-computer interface of the future would allow that person to have a normal interaction with their family members. Honestly, 
I don't really care whether we believe that person is conscious or not, or whether I have the scientific evidence to prove that they are conscious or not. If they are able to communicate with their family, then you know that's good enough for me. Absolutely, well, sure, I, I can see that. But now, right now, technically, it's still a, it's it's a bit of cumbersome technology. This is not something you got to do at home. So, what's the future of this? Do you see this as a portable diagnostic system somewhere down the line? Yeah, I do, and I think it's not as far down the line as you know as we might all think. Um, we have recently, and I didn't talk about this in my in my talk today, but we've we've recently been exploring ways of transferring the fMRI technology to EEG. Now, obviously, EEG is cheaper, it's more portable. Um, in some senses, it's easier to do. It has many problems in this patient population. Um, one of the problems is, is to do with the brain damage. EEG systems work very well with brain-shaped brains. Uh, as soon as your brain is not brain-shaped, and that is often the case in a patient who's had a traumatic brain injury, who's been involved in a car accident, for example, EEG models have a lot of problems localizing signal. So that's a big problem. Uh, also, uh, you know, for your EEG model to work effectively, you often really need to have a skull. And many of our patients have parts of their skulls missing. Uh, this is part of the, the, the surgical procedure involved in saving their lives. Uh, and this can cause all sorts of artifacts you know, on the EEG. The other thing that I think is powerful by its simplicity in the fMRI is that it is to do with the anatomical localization. At the end of the day, um, you know, it, I mean, one of the tasks that we use is to ask the patient to imagine playing a game of tennis. We look for the characteristic activation in the, in the premotor cortex. But really, it doesn't actually matter whether it is in the premotor cortex or not. It also doesn't really matter if the premotor cortex, due to the brain injury, has been shifted to somewhere that it wasn't previously. As long as we can replicate it, and every time we ask the patient to imagine this task, that same area of the brain lights up and it's robust and reliable, then we can use that as a communication signal. And it's, it's a little harder to do that with EEG because we don't have the same level of anatomical precision. Saying that, it's doable. Um, and I have some people, some postdocs working with me in Cambridge at the moment. Uh, Damien Cruz uh, presented data at Human Brain Mapping Meeting in, here in Barcelona earlier this year, showing that it is doable with um, EEG in, um, in a patient who is presumed to be vegetated. Now, there it doesn't, we change the task slightly. We don't have them imagining playing tennis. We have them squeezing their, imagine squeezing toes or imagine squeezing the right hand. And this produces enough information to be able to decode the EEG signal to determine whether the patient is signaling a yes or signaling a no. Now, you know, we still have some way to go. It doesn't work in real time. In fMRI, the patient is still in the scanner and we know whether they're saying yes or no. With EEG, we have to take the data away, analyze it, come back several hours later and we can correctly deduce what the response would ha you know, was at the time. So, you know, some of the logistics, the technology still has to be worked out, but I'm, I'm quite confident that in a reasonably short time, we will have um, a, a portable system that will allow a patient who is behaviorally entirely non-responsive to be able to produce yes and no responses. That's very impressive. But now tell me, um, in some sense, you could, this sounds a bit counterintuitive 
to me that this is right now so difficult because if you look at the existing brain computer interface technology essentially it's like okay you use a classifier to associate brain states to certain kinds of outcomes certain kinds of behavioral outcomes so i would have imagined that you would exploit this kind of existing bci technology for your patients but apparently your patients have some special features that prevent you from doing that so what what, what makes them special it's in that interesting sense? i mean we have um we have collaborations with some excellent bci people in europe now uh, we have a, a grant so-called decoder grant for framework 7 grant specifically to try and integrate existing bti bci technology with um the experience that we have with vegetative and, and minimally conscious patients. But I tell you, I think the most difficult problem is more of, um, more of a social one or a psychological one. And it's actually about training. If you look at the very best BCI systems, they involve some training. Now, you know, the best ones don't involve a lot of training, but it's some training. That training invariably involves a social interaction between an experimenter, a scientist, a trainer, uh, and a patient, perhaps a, a paraplegic patient or somebody who is incapable of moving. But almost always that patient is capable of communication. And, you know, you imagine the scenario. You say to the person, well, what I want you to do is to, you know, imagine playing tennis. And when you do, the cursor is going to move on the screen. And I want you to make it go up with a bit more tennis or down with a bit less tennis. This involves a kind of a complex social interaction that's very hard to have with a patient that you do not necessarily know in advance is even conscious. And then this is the more difficult sort of situation that we're often faced with with these patients. It's not like having a normal interaction with somebody where they can say, hang on, tell me again, I didn't, I didn't quite understand the instructions. Our patients can't do that. Um, at the very best, our patients can imagine playing tennis in order to indicate yes over a five minute period when we specifically ask them a question like, did you understand the instructions? And that whole, you know, just to ascertain that somebody knew what you wanted them to do would require, you know, a little bit of, a little bit more effort than it would with somebody who could just tell you, stop, stop a minute, I, I, you know, I've lost the plot. Let's go through this again. How do I do it? Um, and I think that's a, you know, it's a, it's a barrier to entry in, in this situation that it's, you don't have normal channels of communication. Everything is much slower. So, so do so do you also find examples where you have patients who clearly who just don't get it? Yeah. But yeah, you see they try to do something, but they do the wrong thing. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, well, that's, yes, we do. I'm sure whether we know what they're doing or not, you know, is another matter. And I think that's really the problem. Unlike, a, you know, a, a patient that can talk to you and say, well, when you said play tennis, did you mean I'm supposed to be serving from the baseline or should I be up near the net? You know, we can't have that sort of dialogue. We have to be very prescriptive. We have to tell people precisely what we want them to do in a way that we hope they always understand. And of course, inevitably, some of them won't because we all have different our, our world views of how one plays tennis, for example. Is but but how different. quickly how quickly do you understand from your average patient that they got it? Yeah, so this is the great thing about the tennis task, which, you know, it, in some senses, it's a bit strange, uh, especially being English. I'm slightly sensitive having come up with this tennis playing task. It's a slightly odd thing to do, and perhaps it seems very English. Um, and... But it, the well, it could have been cricket, you know. It could have been it could have been cricket. <laughs> but there you go. We, I think cricket probably would never have worked as well. And the reason is there are many more degrees of freedom with cricket than there are with tennis. The 
the reason we ended up with tennis is because essentially we're trying to get people to imagine moving their arms. That's really all it takes. If you imagine moving your arms in a big gestural way, you know, waving your arms in the air like you were waving a flag, that produces beautiful premotor activity. And I tell you, it works in every single person. This is not something that, you know, sometimes doesn't work. Absolutely everybody it works. If you say to people, imagine playing cricket, to use your example, we, we've actually tried football, soccer before. Um, what happens in healthy volunteers is typically they choose different things. I mean, in soccer, somebody might favor playing in goal. So they'll imagine standing still with a, a little bit of hand movement, or they might be a striker, in which case they'll imagine a lot of sprinting up and down the um, you know, up and down the pitch. Similarly with cricket, are you in bat, are you bowling, are you fielding? It has many degrees of freedom. Tennis, basically, whichever role you choose to play in a game of tennis, it's going to involve waving your arms around in the air like you're waving a flag. And, you know, I'm joking aside, I, I think it's that sort of relative invariance in how people imagine doing the task that makes it so reliable in the scanner. And it means we don't do any training. We really do not tell people, when I say, you know, play tennis, do it in this way or do it in that way. We, we are able to just put people in the scanner and say, the idea is play tennis. At most, we will say, please don't run around too much because that tends to activate spatial navigation networks as well. So we, we, we tend to say, well, stand still when you're playing tennis and imagine you're serving or you're receiving on the baseline. But there's no great training involved and it works every time. But is it... Um, is it helping you in this case that that you are exploiting the asymmetries in the body representation here? So for instance, now you involve the hand that you know will have a larger representation in these body maps than, for instance, the foot. Is that helping you? Yeah, we've had a, we've had a lot more success with with hands, as you say, um, than with feet. Um, which you know, given that the, you know feet are represented more medially um, than you know than the hands, perhaps not surprising. You know, perhaps that is a good thing. Although it tends to be a bilateral activity across the midline in the premotor cortex that we see when people you know imagine playing tennis. So it's not anyway. a lateralization effect. So actually, it's not the lateralization. People will typically produce bilateral activity. But also controls. Controls, exactly, yes. Um, but, you know, again, we're quite non-prescriptive about how people play tennis, and people will often move the, you know, imagine moving the racket to the other hand. We don't say only move your right hand. We say, you know, we try you know, move your hands around like you're playing tennis. So, um, you know, we haven't done sort of fine-tuned the experiment to try and generate uh, a specific lateralized activity, but in part because it just works so well. I mean, we've had to fine-tune this experiment um, in some ways, but but not to a great extent, because from very early on, it, it, it proved itself to be very reliable. Whereas other things like we tried imagining swimming, for example, it just tended to be less reliable. Imagine singing a song in your head. Again, it was less reliable. But given the, the organization of the body representation, then you would expect if you would take a, a task that would involve parts of the face, like the lips, for which you know you have a huge representation. Yeah might be very effective if you consider now, that I, we have and i now i i think these things probably would be effective if you were actually doing the thing but the key you know the, the important thing here is it's about imagery and I, i've been very surprised at how um you know in the early days when we were developing these tasks how unreliable many imagery tasks that i thought would be very reliable would be so 
for example, one of the, 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 the early studies we did with Melanie Bowley, who is also speaking here today, looking at different types of imagery tasks, we came up with face imagery. We got people to imagine faces. And, you know, I, I naively thought, well, this is, this is going to work in everybody. We've all got a fusiform face area. It's in the right fusiform gyrus for all of us. We'll all activate faces. Now, it turns out it's not true. Uh, you know, some of us will activate our FFA some of the time when we imagine faces, but a lot of us won't, which makes it clinically useless. It's not reliable enough to, to use. And, you know, when I went back and I questioned people after, you know, after finding this out, I questioned people that had done a lot of face work. Actually, even perceiving faces is not as reliable as we might expect it to be on an individual subject basis. If you, t if you pull apart, you know, those fabulous studies of face perception where people are actually seeing a face and you look at every individual subject... Um, you know, I can tell you that not every subject typically produces significant activity in their fusiform face area, you know, every time they actually see a face. So to expect it to activate during an imagery task, I think is probably asking too much. It's not true of tennis. Imagine motor, you know, it's, again, it's not, it's nothing magical about tennis, but imagining waving your hands around in the air. I'm willing to wager um, it's hard to find a subject that that does not produce activity in the premotor cortex. Yeah, we could want to test. Then, on top of this, in some sense, it's it's very worrisome no, what you're what you're saying now because you also showed in your talk that actually, if you just look at activation maps in fMRI, you also cannot distinguish whether you look at the conscious patient, uh, conscious subject, or an, uh, an unconscious subject, uh, patient. On top of this, now you're saying. In my control subjects, I cannot necessarily um, have a highly reliable replication of activity when people imagine different kinds of tasks. However, now in the case of of, of tennis, this is this is effective. There's high uh, repeatability there. So, uh, how do you account for that? Um, I think it's a sensitivity issue. I mean, I I, I think every person has a fusiform face area, and I think that area is perceiving faces in every person when they see faces and perhaps even when they um, imagine faces. Um, you know, but it's the sensitivity of fMRI is not such that in every participant we will detect activity in that region when they're doing the task. So could it also not, but could it also not mean that, let's say in the future form cortex, the, this, the representation of faces is more distributed than the, than the movement of tennis in your motor cortex, and therefore it's more difficult to pick it up reliably over different trials. Would that be a yeah, reasonable interpretation? Yeah, I think that's, that's quite possibly true. Um, I think there are many, many reasons that could account for the variability. You know, I think pure imagery reasons too. I mean, it may well be that it's easier to imagine waving your hand around than it is to imagine a face. Do you imagine the face of your wife or your child or your dog or, you know, I, you know, I don't know. It, it, there are many reasons why this may be. Um, you know, I, I know that empirically it's true that face imagery is less reliable than motor imagery in the context of imagining playing tennis. Similarly, imagining, I mean, we thought for a long time, you know, sub-vocal rehearsal might be a very good one. We're all used to the idea of singing a song in our heads. Um, in one of our early experiments, we had uh, participants singing Christmas carols. Uh, 
and we were probably doing our scanning in December or something. We had participants imagining Christmas carols, singing a, singing a carol. And, you know, again, a lot of people, a lot of the time, will activate Broker's Area when they're singing Jingle Bells, but not everybody all the time. And the problem is... Um, you need it to be everybody all the time if you're going to make a reverse inference, if you're going to look at it and say, ah, yes, this person is doing what I asked them to do. They're imagining singing a carol or they're imagining playing tennis. It's essentially a, a reverse inference and you don't have a lot of power in reverse inferences unless you know you have a very reliable, uh, very reliable and robust result. Right. So the other aspect of the question had to do with the fact that you... If you would just look at the imaging result, you would not be able to say whether that person was conscious or unconscious. So um, how do you interpret that with respect to our understanding now of consciousness and its its expression in the kind of activity, metabolic activity, that, that we can actually image with this kind of technology? Well, I think you have to make a very clear division between, let's say, what we'll call passive paradigms and active paradigms. Now, passive paradigm is something that the brain will automatically do, um, irrespective of whether you are conscious or not. And that will include speech perception, face perception, all of these things. Now, you know, if your fusiform face area lights up when you see a face, if your auditory cortex lights up, activates when you hear speech, you may well be conscious when that happens, but it will also likely happen when you you know if you are unconscious even if you are healthy and unconscious for example if you've been anesthetized um, therefore we can't use it as a vehicle for determining that somebody is conscious you know it, it, even if it's highly correlated with consciousness you know it's 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 not good enough the other types of paradigms the things we've been exploring are not dependent on external stimulation and these are i'll call them active paradigms um, because what you're doing is you are asking somebody to generate a response with their brain. And this, for me, is analogous to, to asking somebody to raise their left hand. It's the same thing. You're saying, activate your premotor cortex when I ask you to. Uh, now, you're, you're not playing them a sound that you know will automatically activate it, and we know from the various experiments that we've done over the years, to usually to satisfy sceptical reviewers, um, that people are capable of not generating these responses even when you ask them to. And the tennis example is a great example. If you say to somebody, I'm going to ask you to do something and I want you not to do it. In the fMRI scanner, if you say, now imagine playing tennis, you will not see activation in the premotor cortex. People are perfectly capable of not generating this. And it's because it is an active or a willed volitional task. You have to want to do it. And it's that sort of want that we are using, I suppose, as our marker of consciousness. Our, our notion is that, you know, if somebody has the mental capacity to, to decide not to do something in spite of being told that they have to do it, then we think that's a reasonable marker that they are conscious, or at least as conscious as, as you or I am. And that, you know, I think distinguishing between those different fMRI tasks is really fundamental to this work because it's very, very important that one doesn't think that all fMRI means, um, you know, any fMRI activation means that you're conscious. And similarly, it isn't true that activation could just be an automatic thing. There are certain types of activation that simply cannot be automatic. Okay, so then... Uh if we now take take that interpretation of what this means for consciousness and we look at the kind of 
order that, that, that people try to give to the different states of consciousness you might find a person in, from, let's say, coma to fully aware. Is that structure that, that we assign to different forms of consciousness that actually helping us, or is it more of a hindrance? Right, where you would go from coma to, let's say, minimally aware, etc. Yeah. Um, I, actually, I don't know the answer to that. Um, there have been many surprises in this area over the last 10 or 12 years, and I'm very happy, I'll be very happy to be, to be, uh, you know, mostly to continue to be surprised. You know, it may be, for example, that the temporal aspect turns out to be more important than the, the depth aspect. You know, it may be that a lot of minimally conscious patients, are, it, it's not that they're in some intermediate state of consciousness between where you and I are and between a vegetative patient. It may be that they are intermittently conscious. They come in and out of consciousness. I don't find that you know, very hard to, to believe. Um, I think that's something we can now explore because we, you know, we have a tool that we can use to more or less say that this person is conscious at this at this point in time. And obviously, with longitudinal scanning, one could could follow this in a minimally conscious patient and work out, you know, whether it is a temporal rather than a depth thing. Uh, similarly, with coma, you know, we don't, you I know, mean, coma and vegetative state they're often mixed up. Coma patients really are quite different. These are patients who appear to be asleep most of the time whereas vegetative patients open their eyes and have sleep wake cycles and some to some extent appear to be animate um, we've done very little research um, using these types of imaging approaches with coma patients and you know it may be that we find that a lot of patients who are comatose or appear to be comatose do in fact have residual cognitive capabilities and perhaps even consciousness. I hesitate to predict that would be the case, but it, you know, it, many, as I say, many things have surprised me and, and you know, that to some extent, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me if, if that turned out to be the case. So, um, I, you know, I don't think these things are not useful because, uh, you know, up until now we, we have to go on what we know and what we know is what we can measure and what we can measure up until now has been the behaviour. And behaviourally, these are distinct conditions, coma, vegetative state, minimally conscious state. Um, and, you know, they can be uh, differentiated based on, you know, on behaviour. Whether it, it turns out that those are useless concepts in terms of levels of consciousness, I, th I hope, I hope we now have the tools that will help us to answer that question. That's fantastic. But then... Um What's the working model of consciousness that you then apply to this? Like, for instance, also in the discussion this morning, uh, one, one, one view is that you would say, well, you have these particular areas of the, of the neocortex that have to be combined in, let's say, something you might call a global workspace or have to be massively integrated in order to be conscious. An alternative view uh, could be that you say, no, they're actually very primitive subcortical structures that provide consciousness, while these higher areas of the cerebral cortex provide uh, a content to that of varying complexity. It's rather decisive which of these two camps you step into if you now look at your, your vegetative state patient. Yeah. So what's your working hypothesis in this, in the between these two extremes, um, well, really, I think it's it's only. I mean, this goes back to you, your question this morning: is that you know you can test it. I think that the problem until now has been 
it's been very hard to come up with any corroborative evidence. You know, you can you can come up with something like a global workspace model of consciousness, and we can say, well, you know, these people, healthy healthy participants that we know are conscious, produce this pattern of activity in their brains. Um, these machines, animals, uh, vegetative patients that we know are unconscious produce something else. But you don't really have, in the, in the case say, of the vegetative patients, you don't have corroborative evidence. You can't say we know they are not conscious and you know they, they have this, this, this model of consciousness fits. Now I think you can. I think we could use the activation paradigm. As I say, it doesn't answer the, the question of what is consciousness, but I think it does allow you to have some sort of corroborative evidence and say, well, we can test whether these people who appear to be unconscious are actually conscious, and then test these types of models to see whether they stand up. And, you know, honestly, I don't know whether they will. Okay. Uh, I think that's, that's um, you know, that's a, a suggestion that you made this morning, and I think it's a very good suggestion. This is provides us with a mechanism for testing that. Okay. But now, if, if we look at for instance, uh, the classics, right, the, the giants uh, that inspire us, like Penfield, um, he, he, at some point in his career, got convinced that there were much more these, these subcortical or centroencephalic cores that would provide the key ingredients of, let's say, cognition and consciousness, because lesions to, to subcortical structures had a way more devastating impact on a patient than lesions to the neocortex. And that then was an argument for him to say, well, we should look more at the subcortical structures. Do you also find that in the patients that you look at? Do we find whether the injury is similar correlation? Exactly. Um, well, again, the problem is all, well, all patients are different. That's the problem. And, you know, we, I couldn't possibly say, yes, we generally find that's the, that's the way in patients because. Uh, in part because there's so much variability in the site of the damage of the patients, and in part because you know often it's difficult to work out exactly what the damage is. If you've had a very traumatic brain injury, you know this is not a measurable quantity. You know you've got a bit of well, you know diffuse axonal injury is the perfect uh, you know is the perfect sure. example where you you know you're basically saying it's you know it's damage all over the place. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't think I can really say. I mean, I think we learn a lot from uh, disorders like the locked-in syndrome, where you you know you very often do have a very specific brainstem injury that has resulted in a situation where a patient is ostensibly cognitively normal, but is nevertheless motorically almost entirely impaired, perhaps only able to blink an eye or you know or move an eyebrow. Um, this produces, I think, the logical certainty that there are likely to be other patients that um, are entirely cognitively preserved, yet unable to even blink an eye or move an eyebrow. It's, as a scientist, it's inconceivable to me that the moment, you know, the lesion that knocks out eye movements also happens to knock out the whole of cognition. And of course, this is what we're looking at here is some kind of disconnection syndrome. Um, you know, it's, it's a lesion of a subcortical structure that is essentially disconnecting an otherwise intact cortex. Now, that's why I would be reluctant to um, to you know, accept a view that this therefore makes these subcortical structures more important. Um, 
because it could just be that you know you've cut off the water supply you've cut off the you know you've disconnected the really important stuff up top and in a sense it's going back to your comment about communication disorders in a sense what you've done is you know you you've disconnected you you've 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 severed a channel of communication between the brain and i say that in quotes the you know the conscious brain and the external world preventing either external stimulation coming in or um, you know or the will going out you know or in some cases both very good so to to, to finish up I have, I have two questions um, so on the one hand I'm, you've been around for quite some time um, making this incredible progress uh, using using these these really modern advances in, in imaging technology so if given your experience and in the way we approach studying the brain and understanding consciousness, what's what's the law of, of Adrian Owen that we should all adhere to? <laughs> That's a very unfair question. Um, I don't have a law. I just follow my nose. You know, I don't have a law. That could I be a law. Follow your nose. I follow my hunches for sure. There you go. You've told me what my law is. I follow my hunches. I I've had a lot of uh, very strange ideas over the years, and some of them. Have worked out very well. Some of them have worked out to be, you know, complete blind alleys. Um, I think, I mean, in the context of the work I've done in this particular patient population, what I have learned is very often that the prevailing view, um, you know, is not necessarily the right view. And if you have a hunch, however bizarre it might seem, then follow that hunch. So, yep, follow your nose. Um, I, you know, I don't think 12 years ago, at least I, I know that 12 years ago, um, when we started to talk about these patients having residual cognitive function, there was a tremendous amount of resistance to this idea because it just didn't seem like it could be at all likely. And we've gradually worked our way through, uh, you know, through this hierarchy. And, I, you know, I think if I maybe followed my nose even earlier than I did, we would have probably got to where we are today much more quickly than we have. I think, you know, the idea that somebody could actually be conscious uh, and even able to communicate uh, met with a tremendous amount of resistance, even at a time when I think myself and people working with me, you know, are pretty sure that this, this must be the case. So follow your nose and follow it fast, I would say. Very good. Last one is... What's the one prediction which you really want to stick your neck out today? So I can come back to you five years from now and say, Adrian, show me where you're right or wrong. Uh, I predict that we, we will have a patient within five years who is entirely behaviorally incapable of demonstrating any evidence of consciousness awareness, yet is, is, is nevertheless capable of having a normal, and I put that in quotes, a normal conversation via some form of machinery, be it a, a brain-computer interface or, you know, or an fMRI scanner or, uh, with somebody in the outside world. So this has to be you know, the absolute nightmare scenario, a patient who, under any form of clinical investigation, any form of behavioral testing, can exhibit no signs of conscious awareness whatsoever, yet in some technologically driven situation is able to have a conversation that most of us would would consider to be perfectly normal not just yes no questions is expressing opinions about the world about themselves and about the situation they're in i i predict we will have that scenario within five years fantastic Aidan Owen, thank you very much for this conversation thank you